All right. Good morning, friends. All right. Let's uh, flip over to Romans. We're going to keep going through the book of Romans. Last week, uh, we had uh, Romans 7. Last week, um, we had a guest speaker. Uh, Dr. Craig Blongberg was here talking about uh, the historical uh, background behind Luke and how he went about it and so forth, writing a gospel. And uh, hopefully uh, enabling us and helping us to be able to have a little more confidence into why we believe what we believe and the historical um, uh, facts around that. Uh, if you weren't with us uh, two weeks ago, uh, we did the second half of Romans chapter 6. And I'm going to want to try to get through all of 7 today. So in very brief, Romans chapter 6, so Paul stops talking about salvation in chapter 5. In other words, his subject matter is no longer salvation, how a person is saved. And from 1 to 5, in, in brief, he's made the case, he's made the argument that salvation, how a person becomes a child of God, how a person is saved from the penalty of sin, is always by God's grace, his unmerited favor, through our faith. In other words, our faith and trusting in what Christ did at Calvary is how a person is made right with God. And what did Christ did at Calvary? Or what did he do at Calvary, I should say? He paid for sin. He literally, there's different ways the Bible explains it in different letters through Paul and Peter and different people. Uh, but ultimately, whether he, he, it's the subject matter that he became sin, he that knew no sin became sin on our behalf, uh, that he bore our sins in his own body, uh, that he nailed our sins to the tree, that he separated us as far as the east is from the west from our sins. So whatever uh, imagery or verses, I'm not saying that's just imagery, but the, the point is, is that somehow very intimately, uh, very closely, Christ took your sin and my sin and in his own body. And when he was crucified at Calvary by human beings for their various motives, that our sin was upon him and he paid the penalty. John the Baptist refers to him as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, making that picture for us, or at least in that time for the Jew and, and for us also now through understanding of the Old Testament, that he was the ultimate and perfect sacrifice, the, the perfect blood, the uncorruptible blood that was shed. We know that the blood of bulls and goats that never forgave, right? Hebrews tells us that. What the blood of bulls and goats do in the Old Covenant, it smeared, it blotted. The word means to smear over sin. But all those old sacrifices look towards the Messiah who would, by the perfect blood shed for us, would pay for our sins. The wrath of God was poured out on him, and then three days later he rose from the grave because he could not be held. If we die, we stay in the grave because death will ultimately, or excuse me, sin will ultimately cause a physical death in our lives along with the spiritual death that it causes on the daily. So that's one through five, right? In the beginning of six, now we're talking about something different. The language changes a little bit. And it starts to talk about fruit and living and reckoning and these, the, the principles and, and sanctification of how a person now who gets saved begins to walk with Jesus. And, we've been kind of, and as we've been talking about it, we've been talking about the fact that for many of us, we, whether it's through a, you know, a, a crusade or a Bible tract or a friend or an enemy or whatever it might be, that somehow we heard the gospel and we got saved. But for many of us, after we said, yes, I trust in and I want to invite what Christ did for me into my life. I need that forgiveness. We're just kind of left to float. We're not here to insult anyone or measure people. We just, kind of, we just knew we were saved. And so we just started going to church and kind of we doing our thing. But there's so much more to being saved. Not necessarily the idea of like laborious work and terribleness. That's not it at all. That's religion. But it's how can we as Christians now begin to walk with God and to experience the life that Jesus promised us. Right? He said, I come that they might have a life and that more abundantly. He said, if anyone is thirsty, let him come into me and drink, and out of his innermost beings will flow rivers of living water. So the, the life that Jesus spoke of that would come through his cross oftentimes or can be very different than the life that we would experience. How many of us would describe it and say, how are you doing today? Oh, it's crazy. It's like I have this well in my gut, and it just flows all the time with joy and peace. But that's what Jesus called us to. 
So there can be a disconnect between what we experience as Christians depending on how we've been discipled or if we've been discipled, depending on how we've considered the scripture or how it's been explained to us. There can be this disconnect between what Jesus described he came to bring and what we experience. And chapter 6, 7, and 8 is how you and I begin to and walk in what Jesus promised us. That idea of uh, uh, an amazing life, a full life, uh, the fruit being love and joy and peace rather than anxiety or anger and you know, discontentment that, with, with, that we experience in the world. And so the first part of chapter 6, it's all about knowledge. Not knowledge that puffs up, but things that we know happened. That God says happened when we got saved. He says that when, when Christ died at the cross, and when we trusted in that, that we died with him. Obviously not physically, but that Christ accounted us, or I should say the Father accounted us as dead as the Son, as his Son was. So when Christ died, and we identify with that by faith, the scripture says that we died also. Which, what does that even matter? What's the importance of that? What it's talking about there in short, and, and I encourage you to go back and, and consider it for yourself, is that there was a new person or a new man in Christ when he was raised from the dead. So the Bible says that by us dying with Christ, we died to sin, we died to our old nature, and, and, and we died to the power of sin. In other words, we were separated from it. Death in the scripture uh, is, is it's an explanation of a separation. Whether it's spiritual death in my, as a person who might reject Christ and reject the payment for sin, that there will be a spiritual separation forever from the Father, right? Or whether it's a physical. If I die physically, I've been separated. My soul is separated from this body. My soul is separated from humanity in this, in this world, and it is now in a different place. Right? So death, that's the idea of death. So we've been set free from the power of sin. What does that mean practically? It means, and this is kind of the, 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 the tough news, when we sin, it's nobody's fault but our own. The devil has never made anyone sin. That's never happened. The idea of the demon of pornography or the demon of lying or demon of this jumping on you and causing you to do something, it's a lie. It's not true. Is there spiritual warfare and is Satan you know, pretty darn good as well as other folks, including ourselves, that helping other people sin? Sure. But we're the ones that choose it every time. When we share the, the juicy gossip tidbit, we choose that. It's not the demon of gossip on me. No, it's, it's me. And that's the tough part. But the good part is this. You don't have to do that anymore. You've been set free from that. And I think that many of us, just whether it's from teaching or experience or whatever, when we have besetting sin or something that we always fall into, if we always rage, if we're cut off in traffic, if we always you know, rage while we're watching TV, if we're always worried about everything as if God will not provide for us, if you know, fill in the blank, if I'm lusting about everything, if I'm coveting everything, you know, whatever it might be, that I don't have to do that anymore. That, that I, and, and for many of us, we, I think we experience that. And what we're waiting for, and I mean this with all the respect in the world, I've done this in my own life. We're waiting to just feel different. We like, if we look at our phone or Facebook too much, we're just waiting for one day to not want to do that anymore. Like we're just going to wake up and go, I just never coveted it again. I've never been proud again. I just don't feel like it anymore. Our whole, it's interesting because our whole society, I couldn't speak for the globe, but for the United States of America, our whole society is do what you feel like doing. You be you. As if that's the true liberty, to do everything that you feel. So we're, just, we're conditioned, it's our sinful nature, our society. Everything just tells you, just wait till you feel like doing something else. If you feel like sticking in your marriage, stick in your marriage. If you feel like leaving it, hey, you've got to be true to yourself. You should leave it. Isn't that what everything is said to us all the time? So for many of us, when we're dealing with besetting sin, we just want to feel different about it. We want to be delivered and when we say oftentimes in Christian circles delivered, what we're saying is, I just want to just not ever be tempted again, and then I won't do it. And then it goes to this weird psychological place, doesn't it? Well, if God didn't want me to do that, he would deliver me from it. But he doesn't deliver me from it, so clearly it's okay with him. So he and I, we have a deal. He understands that this is something that's hard for me, and he just, it's cool. 
It's really bizarre how we go there. But the gospel says, no, you died with Christ, you've been raised with him, you actually have been separated from the power, the authority of sin, and you're now free to walk however God has called you to walk. And the, the twist in it is that we can look at that sometimes and say no to ourselves. Jesus put it this way, take up your cross daily and follow after me. And we can look at that and we go, that's death. I don't want that. It's true. It is death. It's death to the nature that we inherited through Adam that has been causing death for the history of humanity, or since the fall, I should say, that has been causing separation and anger and angst and all the craziness. Yeah, it is sometimes difficult because the sinful nature does not want to relinquish control of our soul. And sin feels good. So the, the whole point is that we've been liberated from that and we have a new life that we can live in Christ. And then the second half of chapter uh, uh, 6, unfortunately, whatever reason, technical problems, it didn't get recorded. So, uh, yeah, it's just gone. Um, well, it's still there, but as far as any teachings from here, they're, they're not there. Uh, but in the second half is this. Paul says, well, if grace is abounding, if we're not under the law, we're under grace. If we're forgiven from sin, then should we just sin? Should we just keep going? And he kind of asked the question a couple of different ways there in chapter 6. And his answer is no, God forbid. And all, the, and all the rhetorical questions that Paul always asks, his response, depending on your translation, is God forbid. Literally, it would, it would read something to the effect of like, don't ever say that, <laughs> essentially. Don't ever say that. And so the second portion is this. He says, don't you understand? Again, this isn't salvation. This is fruit. He says, don't you understand that whatever you yield the members of your body to, that's what you're a slave of. And he says, in the past, we were slaves to sin. In other words, we, had, we didn't have the Holy Spirit in us. We didn't have God's life in us. We weren't part of that new creation in Christ. All we could ever do was sin. We were slaves to it. We were slaves to our desires, what we wanted to do, how we asserted ourselves, how we, our thought processes. And he, and, he, and he makes the analogy, he says, we were free from righteousness. We had no duty to it. We had no attachment to it. We had no care for it. When we were unsaved and we didn't have Christ in our hearts or the Holy Spirit bonded to our souls, however you would like to describe it. Before we were saved, we were completely enslaved to sin, but now we're free from it. And so we have the option, what am I going to yield the members of my body to? Am I going to yield the members of my body, members just being my arms, my legs, my mouth, my eyes, my brain, what am I going to yield it to? Am I going to yield it to Christ and walk in this new creation and life that he created for me at his resurrection after Calvary? His input from the Holy Spirit as he seeks to lead and guide me? Or am I going to listen to my old nature that is perpetually and, and can only be self-centered, that always looks for itself, that always looks out for number one, that always protects me, which one am I going to live by? So if I, if I, what we've been using as a base, if you remember, is to love, right? Because love is the fulfillment of the law. Uh, love is ultimately how God describes himself. And, and love is that very base um, foundation of where all other actions are designed to come from, right? In Galatians, he says, by love, serve one another. So this idea of, and when we say love, again, it's the moral love. It's agape love, the Greek being agape, the idea of morally desiring the best for the other human being, regardless of what they've done to me or other human beings. That doesn't mean I approve of them, I justify them, I want to high-five them. It means I can look at any human being on the planet and say, I want God's best for you. That's what love is. So if I operate out of a place of love, I'm operating to bring people the best. Now, that could be hard words. It could be uh, soft words. It could be all sorts of things. But you know, that's, that's what we're called. That's, that's the sin that we're talking about. So if I can now yield my body, my mouth, I can yield it to the old nature. And what's the old nature going to bring? Anger, complaining, gossip, tearing down other human beings. It's, it's gonna, the flesh will always... Now, we can say nice things in the flesh, and we probably said some nice things before we were saved. But oftentimes, even in those nice things, there there's, can be a deeper desire in our hearts that really isn't just to compliment someone else. Sometimes we've even said nice things just because we want to gain favor from someone else. 
or we've said nice things just because we want someone to think good of us, not because we looked at them and say, I just purely and intrinsically want the best for you, and that's why I will say these words. So we have to be careful. Now, if my mouth is yielded to Christ, what's the fruit of that? What's the fruit of the Spirit there out of Galatians 5? It's going to be love and joy and peace, you know, these different ideas. So when I share with people, when they come through the door, I'm not just going to vomit on them a bunch of garbage that will help them not at all. I'm, in fact, going to do something different. I'm going to share with them life. I don't have to stand in the door and complain about my government or complain about, you know, whatever. I can stand in the door and just, how are you doing? I'm sorry to hear that. God's got to have a solution for that. Can I pray for you for that? You know, the foyer of a church, it could be one of the most fantastic, life-giving experiences for humans. It could be. But instead, sometimes, it's just a place where we stand, and, and you know, the hot topic now is masks, and we go, you know, Oh, you're wearing a mask. You must be full of fear, and you're a sheep to the government. Oh, you're not wearing a mask. You're a big jerk, and you hate me. Right? Those are like the two opinions on masks right now, aren't they? Isn't it so weird? What if we just walked into church, and somebody's wearing a mask and said, Hi, how are you? What if somebody walked into the church, they weren't wearing a mask and said, Hi, how are you? I mean, it's crazy. God loves you. How was your week this week? And if they're honest, my week was terrible or my week was great or whatever. I'm sorry to hear that. What happened? Oh, you wouldn't believe it. You know, whatever it might be. By yielding our mouths, our members, to this new life in Christ through the Holy Spirit, we literally have the remedy for every single dilemma of humanity. We have the comfort in Christ for any tragedy. We have the provision for any need. And so Paul is coming along and saying, let's not continue in sin that grace can abound. Let's not continue in sin. Let's be those who are walking in what God has for us. So it's, it's, these chapters, they're just, they're foundational, they're amazing. Now one of the threads that has been through all these chapters is this very interesting. It's in chapter 4 and verse 15. It's in chapter 5 and verse, uh, uh, excuse me, 4, 15. Chapter 5, verse 13. It's in chapter 6, and it's in chapter 7. And it's this very interesting thing that keeps coming up. That you and I, when we died with Christ, when we associated with that death by faith, we're separated from sin, it says this, we are no longer under the law. The law does not apply to us anymore. Now, how, how many people does that scare? For every closet legalist, we all go, what? <laughs> what? You can't say that. You can't do that. People will go crazy. If we, can't, if we can't give the Ten Commandments to every single person we see, they'll go nuts. If Christians, you know, if we don't put in their face every day, thou shalt not covet, they'll covet everything. The world will go to pot. It'll be terrible. And so chapter 7 is the culmination of those verses to talk about what does the law do? What purpose was it? And are we, he even gives an analogy to show you are free from the law. It does not apply to you anymore. Well, let's look at all the verses so that we can kind of get the context, even though it's going to take some time. Chapter 4, if you wouldn't mind. And in uh, Romans chapter 4, verse 15, we read it this way. He's talking about Abraham. And it says here, well, let's read 14 for context. For if it is the adherents of the law that are to be the heirs, that is the heirs to the promise to Abraham, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but there is, where there is no law, there is no transgression. This is the first introduction of this idea. That where there is not a law, there's no transgression. Now we know that from Adam to Moses, everybody still died. From Adam to Moses, there's no written law that we have recorded. And Paul seems to really support that idea. That there were the, but everybody still died. But their sin was not charged to them. Just like if there's no speed limit, if you drive down the road, 
and there is no speed limit sign, you cannot get a ticket, can you? In fact, if you were on a road that had no speed limit sign, and you're on there for 50 miles, and you got pulled over, and the officer said, hey, you know, you're doing 70 miles an hour, I'm giving you a ticket. What would you say? You would say to that officer, there's no sign. How can you ticket me when there's no sign? You would go to court, and the court would do what? It would uphold you, wouldn't it? Because you cannot be charged for a law that is not posted and exists. In this case, he says two things. One, the law, it, does, it brings wrath. This is our first introduction. It does not bring life. In fact, we know, and we're going to look in other, we won't look in other places, but in Hebrews, it says that it's weak, it's passing away. In Galatians, Paul says it cannot give life. The law, following the law, cannot give life. It can only bring wrath. That's all the law could do because we can't fulfill it. Chapter 5. Verse 13, For sin was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted if there is no law. Same idea. Chapter 6. Now this is the first time we see this introduction. Chapter 6, verse 14. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under the law, but under grace. Now see, the power of sin in our life, it comes through the law. The law, and what we're going to talk about today in chapter 7, revives sin, declares sin, and actually agitates sin. Now, something that's important is when we're saying sin in the book of Romans, we're also referring to the sin nature. Not just an entity like covetousness, but the nature by which we inherited from, from Adam. Which, again, it's so, Romans is so hard because there's all these concepts, right? We, we read and we talk in a linear way, but there are all these concepts, and honestly, they're all coming to a head right here. So without those concepts uh, being understood and kind of in our mind, what, what we're talking about is not going to make a lot of sense. So you're not under the law anymore. You're under grace. The, your sin is no longer imputed to you. This is hard for us to understand. That's what's being said here. When you sin as a believer, that is not credited to your account. If it were, you could not be saved. Now, we say things like, keep a short account. Right? Have you heard that? Raise your hand if you heard that. Nobody's raising their hand at all this morning. Have you heard that? Keep a short account. Now, some of that can be for the sake of relationship to the Lord, and that's perfectly acceptable. But the idea is typically communicated this way. Keep a short account so you don't have a bunch of sin in case you die, which seems totally bizarre. In the moment, it can make sense like, oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, wanna, I don't want to get hit by a bus after dropping an F-bomb on someone, right? But that's not how it works. You're not under the law. And what? Where there is no law, what? Sin is not imputed, Right? So when you got saved and you trusted in Christ, your sin is eternally forgiven. That's why we have the imagery that we have in the Old Testament, the idea of they're cast into the sea as far as the east is from the west, all these pictures that they can never be found again. So we have this incredible forgiveness in Christ. And now Paul is going to expand because especially to the Jew and for many of us, we just aren't okay with that. Because we grow up and we live in a meritous place. And so since our entire life is based on merit, we measure others on merit. We're measured on merit. We can't imagine that Jesus Christ's blood is so powerful, it erases merit. It just forgives sin. And so Paul's going to talk about in chapter 7, here's why it forgives sin. Because we're separate from the law. Or do you not know, brothers? I'm sorry, 7.1. Do you not know, brothers? For I am speaking to those who know the law. Now, we don't want to necessarily just say to Jews. Because he says to brothers. And he's writing to Rome, right? He's writing to Roman Christians is who he's writing to. So when he says those who know the law, he's not just saying, oh, I'm only talking to Jews. Most Christians would be familiar with the law. Remember, they don't have the Bible. They don't have the New Testament. They don't have the Gospels. And, you know, what is, we're talking about 56 to 65 AD, you know, is, 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 so many of those letters, many, they don't have that. And most churches aren't going to have that. Remember, the actual Bible is created, you know, assembled in, in the 300s. 
And the, the Gutenberg press isn't until way after that. So realistically, the idea of every single person having a Bible, remember, that's not until the 1800s, our 1800s, where like every single person had a Bible or you could get one or every church had one. It's a long time before that. So what did they talk from? They talked through this from the Old Testament. They talked about the prophecies. They talked about what was fulfilled in Christ. You know, they don't have all the things. They had itinerant uh, messengers that would come around. They would talk about uh, New Testament principles and these type of things. So when every Christian would have some sort of understanding, even as a Gentile coming into that, getting saved, coming to and gathering with other believers, would have some sort of concept of the law at that point. So he's, when he says brothers, remember it's the Greek word for brothers and sisters. And he's, saying, and he's speaking to those who know the law, who, have, who are familiar with it. And he says, the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. Don't you know that a law only binds a person as long as he lives? For a married woman is bound by law to her husband and while he, li- and, uh, excuse me, while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. So Paul creates an analogy. And he says, look, if you're familiar with the law, and actually it went both ways, but if you're familiar with the law, he says, if you're married to someone in the Old Covenant, and let me just make a side note. This is not Paul trying to describe the definitive uh, protocols for marriage and divorce. And I just want to throw it out there because I don't know about you, but I've definitely seen people turn here and say, well, Romans 7, Paul says, unless you're, you're like, well, you also miss out on like 1 Corinthians and places where he talks about abandonment, abuse, and things like that. So this is not the definitive passage on marriage and divorce. It's important we know that as a side note. But he does make this picture and he says, look, as long as two people are married, if someone steps out on their spouse, that person is an adulterer, right? That's something we can all agree with. But if that person's spouse dies, if they go and get remarried, we don't go, ah, you're committing adultery, right? They're widowed, and they're morally free to go and marry again. That's his point. So he's illustrating the point that we died in Christ to the law. He's going to go on. Likewise, my brothers... You also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. There's fruit again, but here's the point. He says, look, just like the person who's widowed is separated from the law of being unable to be remarried, so also because you died, you are separated from the law also. We are both the husband and the wife in this analogy. analogy. We have been separated from the law through the death of Christ because we're identified with it. Why does that matter? (laughs) For some repetition. Because where there is no law, there's no imputation of sin. I think the Bible had to say that four times to us, not to mention the the book of Galatians. Because for many of us, that's, that's a very scary concept to think that there could just be forgiveness of sin without earning it, without trying hard, that is truly a gift of God, that he says, here is a gift that I gave you in my son, that you can be forgiven of your sin eternally and have eternity in me. It's a tremendous, a tremendous gift. And he says, the reason it works is because you're not under the law anymore. Now remember, if we went back through six, nobody's saying that sin doesn't hurt anymore. Nobody's saying that sin doesn't matter. Sin will always destroy. It always will. It will always cause destruction. It will always cause death. It will always hurt. If I'm a Christian and I tell someone off, will that have repercussions? Yes. It could have repercussions for the rest of someone's life. How many stories do we hear about? And I'm not sticking someone's sin solely on themselves or on someone else. But how many stories do we hear where people say, I don't go to church because it's ridiculous and stupid. And then you do a little bit of talking. And what you find out is, oh, I went to this particular school and got the poo kicked out of me all the time. Or I went to this particular church and I got treated like dirt because of how I was dressed. Or I did this or I did that. And, and, they, and they had some sort of experience in it where they were absolutely destroyed. Who did that to them? Christians did. Now, they chose to walk in it. 
So nobody's saying here that people aren't responsible for their own choices. But we can have, at the door of our church or in the sanctuary, we can have radical, radical input on people. So nobody here is saying that sin has no end to it or it doesn't, it has, it doesn't matter. If I raise my child simply always saying, you have to get a good job, you have to go to college, it's about money, it's about retirement, what are you doing? Why are you wasting your time with youth group? Why wouldn't you do this? Then guess what when they get older? There's actually a really funny, I don't recommend looking at it, but there's a pretty funny website called the Babylon Bee, if you're familiar with it. And the reason I don't recommend looking at it is because a lot of it is just sarcastic satire to pretty much treat other Christians poorly. But every once in a while, there's a pretty funny little blurb in there. And one of them is an interview. It's, it's all fake, but it's an interview uh, with these parents. And they say, they go, yeah, we don't, you know, they're, they're trying to figure out why their daughter doesn't want to go to church in, in, in college. And they're like, well, we always went to, we always went to church when there wasn't a basketball game or a football game, when there wasn't you know, a school event, when there wasn't something we were doing on the weekends. Yeah, we always, I mean, if there wasn't something else happening, we always went, right? So if you neglect life for your children, don't be surprised. There'll be a fruit to it. And that's where we've gone with this, right? Now he says fruit. Now he's talking about fruit in Romans chapter 7. So we're not talking about salvation, we're not talking about that. We've been separated from the law so that we could serve another. And he says here in verse 4, he says, Likewise, brothers, just for review, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may be, belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. Notice, in order that, so that you may, so that this could happen. He doesn't say it's a guarantee. He doesn't say you'll just, you'll just do it. He says, no, you've been separated from the law so that you can be another, so you can be Christ, so you can walk with him, you can hear from him, you can be involved with him, you can bear his fruit. That's why he says we've been separated from the law through the death of Christ. Verse um, 5, for while we were living in the flesh, now the idea is there, when not, not, we're still living in flesh, right? Everybody here have flesh on? We're still living in flesh. So he's not saying while we were still in the body. What he's referring back to is when we were living according to our sinful nature. In other words, when we were still slaves to our old nature, before we were saved. He says, for while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. So in the first part of the verse or the, the first section there, he says that we would be separated, we, we died to the law so that we could be separated from sin, the power of sin, and so we no longer have to obey it so that we could belong to another, that is Christ, and then we could produce Christ's fruit. And then he says, because remember, when you were still a slave to unrighteousness, referring back to chapter 6, when you were still, all you could do was unrighteousness, remember, you bore a fruit. Your sinful passions... Aroused by the law. Now, this is an interesting tidbit. Not only does the law reveal sin, it arouses sin. Remember, sin nature. It was funny because I was uh, having a conversation uh, a while ago, actually, uh, with, a, with a kid. And we were just talking about their interaction with their parents. And, and, and the child said, when my parents said, don't do this, it just makes me want to do it all the more. Because they're, they're controlling me. Isn't that how we feel? You're telling me to do that? No. I'm not doing that just because you told me to. We do that, don't we? How many people, even if you just have the thought, you walk by the wet paint sign, and you're like, no, I could. I could, I could do Don't sit there, and you're like, what now? I sat there. Isn't that weird how we have this rebellious thing in us? I remember one time, uh, I was a lot younger, and, and I, I, it was, it's a long story, so I won't tell the whole thing, but I, was, uh, I got pulled over by a police officer, and he was kind of giving me a ration about some stuff. Not, I'm not saying I did or didn't deserve it. And, uh, and he threw my license back into the car, he says, and he goes, go home. And I was like, if I wasn't going to have to stay here longer, I would just tell you, I'm an American citizen. I'll go wherever I want. Right? Just that he tells me to go home. I know I'm not here to talk about the rights. And the, I'm not, that's not my deal. I'm just saying that 
Somebody told me to go home, and I was like, I'll just drive around all night if I want. Sure, I'm dead tired, but you know what? You told me not to, and now I'll have my rights. We're so twisted sometimes that even someone can just say, it could be for our very own good. You don't want to touch that. It's hot. Oh, is it really that hot? That's how depraved we are. And so when the law comes in, it not only reveals our depravity, but it, it arouses it. We're so rebellious, we just go, no, we rise to the occasion. That's what the law does. The law never makes a person right. It cannot make a person right with God. All it can do is expose and arouse sin. That's all it does. It does a good job of it, too. So he says, that bore fruit to death. But now we are released, verse 6, from the law, having died to that which held us captive. What held us captive? Our own sin. We died to the law, we died to sin. We were held captive by our sin through the law. And he's going to expound on that. It can, it can get a little weird, but we'll, we'll work through it. That we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. We have been set free from the law, its demands. We've been set free from the power of sin and its passions so that we can walk in something new. Not the oldness of the letter. So we don't walk in the, in the way of just serving a written code anymore. Now we walk by the new way of the Spirit. So I have the Spirit to guide and govern me. That's why before we say, look, when we were unbelievers, we sinned against law. But now that we're believers, we sin against love. It's not out of the fear of imputation of sin that we, don't, that we want to avoid sin. It's that we want to avoid the fruit that comes from sin and walk in the love that God has for us. It's a completely new dynamic. And here Christ is saying, I have life and I've given you everything you need to walk in the life and the, God, the godliness that I have for you that will lead to life and the fruit of life, joy and peace and all these things. So when we sin against that, really it's the proverbial leaving our change on the table. It's the proverbial of, of shortchanging ourselves. It's, it's where we go, there could be so much more, but out of a fear of my own soul and desires dying or putting the death my sinful nature, I say no to God and yes to myself out of a desire for pleasure in my life. It will feel good if I ream this person out. It will feel good if I go sex it up over here. It'll feel good to deal with my problems with substances. It will feel good to do these things. We literally end up saying no to God in exchange for some sort of temporal relief or pleasure through sin. And then that leads, obviously, to some pretty dark places. So there's really cool concepts here. You are free. You're free people. Christ sets you free. You have, you, you have no obligation for your sin to pay for your sin. It's been paid for. And now Christ is just wooing you to say, if you're willing to walk in my ways, if you're willing to experience what I have for you, the fruit of it will be amazing. It'll be life-giving. That's what's happening. But it's been, it's through, it's, it's, it comes through the fact that when Christ died and we died with him through faith, that we died to the law and we died to sin and our sin nature. It no longer has power of us anymore. What shall we say then? That the law is sin? By no means. So he says, okay, is the law the problem? Is that the problem here? The law, is it the problem? And he says, I would not have known sin, or excuse me, by no means, yet if it had not been for the law, I would have not known sin. Now this is interesting. He has now switched to I, right? Before he's been saying you and we and you and we and you and we, and now he says I. This is important. He's talking about personal testimony. He said, if, he said, I would not have known sin, for I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said you shall not covet. Isn't that interesting? Paul was covetous. Paul had an issue with covetous. He uses this as an example. Now, we have to be careful because he's not saying, well, he's not making some point of somehow like when, when the law was given to Moses, when the law came, when the law was given. No, he's talking about his personal realization through the law of when the law smote him personally, when he had an experience and realized this is what covetousness is, to desire something you know, essentially with discontentment. 
That's what, it's, it's not sin to go, oh, that's a nice house. I wouldn't mind living in that house. It's sin to look at that house and go, my house is such a piece of garbage. And if I, I'm going to do whatever I have to do to get that house, that house should be mine. It's to have this, like an, un, uh, an unholy affection for something. It's just, that's what covetousness is. And he's, he was coveting. And he says, the law came. It wasn't the law's problem. And he goes, but I never would have known if it hadn't told me. He says, but sin, seizing an opportunity, literally, uh, and this is where it can get a little weird, it literally means gaining a starting point or having an origin point. So he's speaking of sin here again, this is the second time, as almost like its own entity, the sinful nature. So the sinful nature seizes an opportunity or gains a starting point through the commandment. So the can, it says, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. So the law aroused something in him. He saw it, and now it, 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 it's revealed and aroused that he shouldn't covet. And that created more covetousness in him. Kind of like we already talked about. That where we see a law, all of a sudden, we're just like, well, fine. I'm going to do that anyway. Wet paint, go slow, whatever it might be. This was Paul's experience. This is not a pre-conversion experience. This is his experience as a Christian. How do we know that? We know that from the verb tenses. In this tense, he's using aorist. When he gets farther down, he's going to use the perfect tense, meaning I experience this right now. This is what I'm going through. Verse 10, he says, or I'm sorry, verse 9. I was a, a, once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. And the very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity, gaining an origin point, through the commandment, deceived me. And through it, killed me. It led me astray. And through it, killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment holy. Uh, excuse me. And the commandment is holy and righteous and good. So he's making this point. It wasn't the law that slew him. It was the sin through the law. That the sin nature through the law that God gave, he was exposed it was, his sin was aroused or it became more active, and then he was slain by it. That's, that's what he's talking about here. And he's saying it's, it's not the law's fault. Did that which is good bring death to me? Again, did the law bring him death? By no means. It wasn't the law that slew him. It was sin, producing death in me through what is good. In order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. So through the commandment, something happened. It was exposed at sin. And not only that, it exposes just how corrupt we really are. The fact that it arouses our sinful nature, that it makes us want to be more rebellious. Oh, I can't listen to that music. I'll listen to it all the more. What good? What? It's crazy stuff, but that's how we do it. Oh, I can't do this. I'll do it all the more. It's pretty wild. So he says, look, I was slain by it. it the sin used that to reap death in my life. Verse 14, we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin, for I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. Now, he's, he's, again, this is, in, this is in the perfect present tense. This is him saying, this is what my life is like right now. This is not past tense. Writing. He's not saying before I was saved or back then. No, he's saying right now, this is what my life is like. Paul, right? Super apostle. He says this. He says, the law is spiritual, but I'm flesh. So the law is from God, but my origin is from humanity and fallenness. And he says, because of that, he says, I do not understand my own actions. We're super out of time. We're just going to finish this thought. He says, I do not understand my own actions. You know, it's funny because sometimes you ask a kid, you say, why do you do that? Why would you do that? And they go, I don't know. And if you're like me, you're like, no, you have to know why you did something. What were you thinking? I really wasn't. You know, it's funny because we do that too, don't we? He says, I do I do the things that I don't want to do. He says, I don't know why I'm doing that. Isn't that comforting? He says, I do not understand my own actions. Paul, why'd you come? I don't know. I know that God is real. I know that he's working. Why'd you? I don't know. 
I don't understand myself sometimes. It's the bizarre twistedness of sin. Now, he's not letting himself off. He says, I don't understand my own actions. For I, what I do not want, that I do. But he says, what I do not, I say, I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. You ever done that? You want to respond in, in the spirit to someone and love them, but what do you do instead? You're a moron. Forget you and your stupid vaccine. Right? Or you're not vaccinated, you hate me. When instead we could be like, oh, that's cool you have that conviction. God loves you. Or when, when we feel hurt and we lash out. Or when we have addictions, whether it's chemical or it's entertainment or pornography. We find ourselves doing the things that we hate. Have you ever been doing something like watching TV and you think to yourself, why am I watching this? I'm not even enjoying this. And then you think, I could get up and like do something else. But then you don't. And you like flip the channels for like 15 minutes and somebody else will come in, what are you watching? Like, nothing. Why do you keep watching it? I don't know. Because it's better than not watching it, I guess. The things that we, we, in our sin nature, when we yield to our sin nature, that nature, it's always alive. It's always ready. It's always a reminder. And he says, the things that I don't want to do, that's what I find myself doing. I find myself doing the things that I hate. That's what he finds. That's what we find. But he, he doesn't stop there. He says, for I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. So he says, in this point of where I'm in my life, he says, look, he says, and this is something we have to come to as Christians. He says, in my flesh, in myself, outside of Christ, just roll with me on this. If you can embrace this, your life will be incredible. In myself, there is nothing good in me. Just repeat that to yourself on your way home in the car. When someone cuts you off and you get all chapped, in me, outside of Christ, there is nothing good. There's selfishness and desire, distrust, all the fruit from the old nature. See, we got saved because we're wrecked. We had to be separated from the law by Christ because we can't do it. We, there is nothing good that dwells in me. What good that is in us now is Christ in us working. And he finishes, he says, the desire, he says, I have the desire to do what is right, but I don't find it in myself to do it. Now again, he's not saying there's an excuse for sin. He, remember, this comes on the heels of chapter 6. What's chapter 6? You can choose good. So when he, says, when he says, I don't have what is in me, he's saying, in my sinful nature, I will never just get zapped and just want to be holy. The sinful nature will never high-five you for going to church or following Jesus or having a devotional time. The sin nature and, and people that are operating in it will never cheer you on for taking a wrong. They'll never cheer you on for absorbing a wrong or you know, just whatever, fill in the blank on that one. It'll never happen. We're crazy, and we're broken. He goes on, we'll end here. For I do not do the good that I want, but the evil that I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells in me. Again, he's not alleviating himself of his um, responsibility. He's saying, look, it's the, sin, it's the sin nature. And one of the things that this should bring us great hope because if we don't, we're like crazy over time. I apologize for that, but I, I really didn't want to not cover this. The reality is in, in all his other letters to the Corinthians, to the Galatians, to the Ephesians, to the Colossians, to the, you know, did I say Philippians? I can't remember. To all those other people, you know what he always says? Stop acting like who you were and act like who you are, right? Because we're new creations in Christ. 
And so he's, he's just saying, he's saying, look, he says, it's not me anymore. That's not who I am anymore. I'm a new creation in Christ now. So he's not saying, I, I'm not going to reap consequence from it or I shouldn't or whatever. He's just saying, look, this is, it's not me anymore. I'm separated from that. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil law is close at hand. Can I just tell you a secret that might change your mind? about That's like my life first. Everybody's life first is like, I'll protect you. and I'll, This is mine. Even when I want to do good, evil is always at hand. I'm, I'm, I'm pro. I can be emptying a trash in the church and have some weird thought like, maybe people will think I'm spiritual. Well, you guys know I'm not. I can... I can be trying to do some good deed and somehow, some way, some weird thought will creep in and go, and I have to go, no, there's nothing good in me. There's nothing good in me. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with the law of my flesh, I, uh, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. He says, "Look in my mind, I serve righteousness. I invite righteousness. I want to follow God, and it's at war because in my flesh, my flesh says, "No, get yours. Assert yourself. Take care of you." And he says, "That's my in my sin nature. That's what I war against in my mind." And then in verse eight, chapter 8, it says, Therefore there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. So here's the thing. There's, God is not condemning you in Christ as a saved person. And he's not condemning you because you've been separated from the law, you've been separated from your old nature, and now you have the Holy Spirit in you, and you're God's new creation in Christ, a chosen one. And what you do with that is up to you. And who you listen to is up to you. The fruit you produce from that is up to you. But as far as God's concerned, you're no longer, sin is not imputed to you. You have no condemnation. You're not condemned by God. But he's cheering you on. And he wants you and I to produce fruit by listening to him. Here's the deal. It's 10.03. Service ends at 10. We have communion. You do the math. Here's what we're going to do. Um, nobody gets here until like five to, to, well, actually like two minutes before service. That's not a condemnation. It's just an observation. Uh, which is fine. I'm not mad about it. it leaves the coffee for me. But the, uh, so the other people aren't going to come in typically until like five minutes till. Uh, so we're going to have communion. Um, Dave will do uh, his, the two songs. If you got to roll, I get it. Uh, we said 10 o'clock. I've gone over. Uh, go ahead and roll. If you'd like to stay for communion, if you want to take communion to go, it's up to you. But uh, what we'll do is just go ahead and grab it. You can partake as you feel led. And we're just going to go. Dave, if you can wrap it up by like, 1012. Um, we're going to go to till 1012. Having said that, having some sort of semblance to COVID uh, uh, mitigation, the deacons will, will hand your, you can come up and the deacons will hand your communion to you. Thank you for your patience. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and the promises and your glory. Thank you for your people that have shown up this morning seeking your face. I pray that they'd be blessed. I pray that you would anoint them this week with your spirit to guide them in the fruit and the good works that you foreordained for them. I pray, Lord, that we would be a representative of who you are and that we'd be a blessing to you. Lord, thank you. You're very kind. In Jesus' name, amen.